listening to the podcast of Northside Assembly of God in Crowley, Louisiana. Next Sunday is the Post family's last Sunday at Northside, and uh, that'll be it's June 13th, and we will probably not see you again before we move. And so if this is your church, we want to ask you, please be here if you can. Uh, next Sunday, of course, there's going to be a big event at the end, Family Fun Day. So hang out with us. We'll feed you. There will be games and activities and stuff for people of all ages. We'll have a good time. And it'll give us a chance to visit with you and hug your necks one last time. So that'll be next Sunday. It'll be my last sermon. And, uh, but also this Wednesday, I'm going to be preaching. Uh, it's been a long time since I've preached on a Wednesday night. But uh, I'm going to be preaching this Wednesday. Um, there's just been kind of a word that's been churning in my heart over the past month and a half or so, and I was kind of debating whether or not I should give it, and I decided, yes, I'm going to do it, but I've run out of Sundays. And so it worked out for me to preach this Wednesday. In fact, Woody and Debbie actually are not even going to be here. They're going to be doing some panel discussion at another church, so it actually works out quite well. So I want to encourage you, if you're available, to come out this Wednesday. Uh, We'll have our midweek meal from 6 to 7 in the gym, and then at 7 o'clock we'll gather in here. I'll lead worship one last time, and then I'll preach on that Wednesday. Some people were asking me, are you going to stream that service? No, we're not. So if you want to hear that message, you need to be here, okay? Um, All right, how many of you ready for the word? Let's do it. Let's do it, and let's hope this rain stops by the time we're ready to leave. All right? we got two more sermons here in Colossians 4. We're going to get it all done uh, between these two Sundays. going to cover just uh, four verses today, and then next week we're going to cover the whole rest of Colossians 4 in one big sweep. Uh, but the title of my sermon this morning is uh, Seasoned with Salt. Let's look at this text, and then we're going to jump right into it. And, uh, and by the way, if we are going to be sharing communion at the end of the service. So if you do not yet have a communion packet, would you raise your hand? We've got some folks that are going to walk around and help you with that. In the balcony, there should be somebody as well. Just hold up your hands, and there will be a couple people that will float around. We've got a few over here, okay? All right. We've got one over here to my far left. And we've got Brother Wilfred back there in the middle. All right. We're almost there. We got some folks over here to the right in the balcony. Thank you, Tim. All right. Everybody, if you need, if you need a communion packet, just go ahead and hold your hand up right now and keep it up. With Miss Lisa in the back, and then we've got uh, a gentleman right here in the front. And that should take care of the bottom seating. All right. Am I missing? Okay, the lowers. Your, your hand's like right here. can't see. All right, Mr. Sammy Miller, Tim, right there in the middle. We're almost there. And so if you're watching us on the live stream, go ahead and, and if you can, prepare communion for yourself as well. We want, we want, you, uh, we want you to join us, and we're not going to cut off that live stream until after communion. All right, I think we're ready to read the text now. Uh, I, as I get closer to leaving, I'm just forgetting about all of these things, and it's not conscious. All right, Colossians chapter 4. Verses 3 through 6, Paul writes this to the Colossian church. At the same time, pray for us as well that God will open to us a door for the word 
that we may declare the mystery of Christ, for which I am in prison, so that I may reveal it clearly as I should. Conduct yourselves wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time, or, or sometimes it's translated, making the most of every opportunity. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer everyone. So Paul is writing this from prison, which oftentimes was just a hole in the ground in the Roman world. And he's writing to these Christians that are gathered in the city of Colossae, maybe 50, 60, 70 people. And here at the end of his letters, he's kind of winding down. He's kind of wrapping things up. He tells them, pray that I would get out of prison so that I can begin to deliver the word again. I want to proclaim the mystery of Christ. I want to proclaim the gospel again. I want to evangelize. And what's interesting about it is he says, pray that I will do it clearly so that when I share the gospel, it makes sense. Which is interesting to me because it shows that there's a connection there between the clarity of the preacher and the prayers of the people. So there you have it, folks. If my sermons have been terrible over the years, if my sermons have been lousy, I just blame it on you guys. Because I'm putting in the work. I'm studying. So if I'm not making any sense, obviously somebody here is not praying for me like they should. So it's your fault. Silliness aside, though, I think there is a very important point here. It shows the interconnectedness of everything in the kingdom. That everything in the kingdom is either positively affected through prayer or it's negatively affected by lack of prayer. But that's one of the things that I, that I teach when I do my prayer workshops. One of the very first things I say is the primary purpose of prayer, first of all, is to be properly formed. That, that prayer, first and foremost, prayer changes us. Amen? Prayer changes us. But folks, it's not just true that prayer changes us. Prayer also changes things. Our prayers, to one degree or another, can impact the very flow of history. Everything we do here at Northside, whether our services are, are powerful and transforming, whether or not our kids' ministry is being effective in reaching kids, whether or not our youth ministry is being affected, whether or not here as a church we're feeding the people we're supposed to be feeding and clothing the people we're supposed to be clothing and making the impact on our community that we're supposed to be making, all of that, at least to some extent, is impacted by the devotion of our prayers. And so your prayers matter. There are things that legitimately hang in the balance based on whether or not God's people pray. And so Paul writes to them and says, pray that I'll get out so that I can evangelize, so that I can once again proclaim the gospel. And then when he says that to them, it leads him to give them another word of instruction about evangelism. He says, be wise in the way that you conduct yourselves around outsiders making the most of every opportunity. And here's the very first kind of emphasis I want to give you here this morning. If you are a follower of Jesus, every follower of Jesus, in one way or another, we are called to bear the good news. We are called to, in our own unique way, we're called to evangelize. We're called to share the gospel. Uh, elsewhere, uh, Paul refers to us as living epistles, 
We are living letters for the whole world to read. We're like God's PR department. The church is the primary means by which God draws people into the kingdom like a magnet. And that happens first and foremost by the way we live our lives. And secondly, it happens through our proclamation with our words. Now, let me pause right here, and I just want to acknowledge something. Whether you're in this room or whether you're watching or listening by some other means, I think there's a lot of people that are tuning in right now that when you hear a word like evangelize, evangelism, or you hear a term like share the gospel, when a preacher like me tells you that we need to be sharing the gospel, I think for a lot of folks, we have some negative associations with some of those terms. Like when we think about evangelizing or sharing the gospel, for some of us, we think of awkward conversations, weird interactions, or we think of something that involves a lot of pressure, where we feel a lot of pressure, like we're part of this Jesus pyramid scheme or something, and you better be out there selling the product or, or you're, you're going to get in trouble. In fact, just to help you, I, let me give you one of my stories. I'm going to give you a story about myself as it relates to evangelism. When I was in my early teenage years, my home church uh, started this, um, they, they got a hold of this evangelism program, and it was called Evangelism Explosion. Some of you might even remember that term, Evangelism Explosion. It was very popular back in the early to mid-90s. And so they got this curriculum called Evangelism Explosion. And on Monday nights, it was voluntary, and I was part of it. But on Monday nights, they would have evangelism classes. And so every Monday night, we would meet together, and we would learn how to evangelize. And, uh, and what they would teach us, what the curriculum would teach us, is basically how to share the gospel and what it would look like. And it would basically kind of give us a ready-made script a cookie cutter method of here's how to present the gospel to someone. And so as we would be in this class, we would basically learn this script that, that when you're sharing the gospel with someone, number one, there's a question that you need to memorize so that you can ask them. You start off with a question and then there's like five different points that you need to make sure you hit, hit each of those five points. And there are certain Bible verses that go along with each of the five points. So you've got to memorize the Bible verses so that you can quote it to them as you're presenting it. So you've got the first opening question. You've got the five points with the verses. And then you end the presentation by asking another question, which hopefully leads to sealing the deal so that you can lead this person through a prayer. And so we would meet for our classes on Monday nights. And then after the classes were over, we would continue meeting on Monday nights, but instead of the Monday nights being classes, now they turned into home visitation nights. And what our church would do is we would gather the names and addresses of all of the people who had visited our church for the first time in the, in the previous weeks and months, and then we would split up into teams of three or four, and then we would go and drive to people's houses, basically unannounced. And I'll never forget this one Monday night, there was this young lady who was my age. She was in my grade in school. I still remember her name. And she had visited our youth group on the previous Wednesday night. And that's how we got the name and address of her family. And so the next Monday night, when we're doing our home visitation, we drive to her house, my, my team of three or four that I was on, 
We drive to her house and knock on the door, unannounced. They don't know that we're coming. And her dad answers the door. And I learned later that the dad and the mom were divorced. So it was just the dad and the daughter. And, and the dad, he was sort of like this soft-spoken guy, you know, probably has a hard time saying no. And so we asked him if we could come in and just visit with him for a while. And he said yes. So we go into his living room. This man that none of us had ever met before and his daughter who had only been to our youth group one time. And there was about four of us. We were all in the living room. And we start with some small talk. And after about five minutes, as we're just about to get into our presentation, you know, one of us is like designated as the person who's going to go through the script. And just about as we get into it, another knock is at the door. And so he gets up and he goes to the door. And lo and behold, as he opens the door, it's a group from the Baptist church down the road. And it just so happens that this Baptist church was also taking the same evangelism curriculum. And they had home visitations on the same night and this young girl who had visited our youth group, she had visited their youth group the Wednesday night before that one. And so the, the dad lets them in. And so they come into the living room. And now we got like 10 people in this guy's living room. Uh, this is not how he planned to have his evening. But there's 10 people now. Now, our church and the Baptist church, we're all on the same team. We understand that. But it's just weird. It's awkward. Like, what's the procedure here? Who's going to take the lead? And the only thing that would have made it more awkward is if there was a third knock in the door, at the door and there was a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses or something. Then we just take the script and throw it out the window, you know? I got stories like that, just weird, awkward evangelism stories where it just doesn't quite go the way you planned. And some of us here, maybe you can, maybe when you think of evangelizing or sharing the gospel, it just brings up memories like that. Whether it was you doing the, va- the evangelism or whether you were on the receiving end of somebody's feeble attempts, you know, we think of awkwardness sometimes, we think of weirdness, we think of pressure. You know, maybe you think about the guy who stands on the street corner with a megaphone shouting at people, turn to Jesus or you're going to burn in hell. That kind of thing. We've, I've seen that growing up in New Orleans around Mardi Gras and that type of deal. Listen, when the New Testament talks about evangelism and sharing the gospel, it's really nothing like any of that. The New Testament gives us a very different model for what it looks like and what it means to bear the good news. So, for example, we see just in this passage where where Paul is telling them, be wise in the way that you conduct yourself with outsiders, making the most of every opportunity. And when Paul says be wise, what he's saying is remember that you are an ambassador of the kingdom. And there is kingdom stuff going on around you all the time. And you need to remember at all times what your assignment is. That you're a kingdom person. And so we're first of all to always conduct ourselves, whether we're in church or whether we're on the interstate or whether we're at the DMV and, and man, we're getting frustrated. You've got to remember you're on assignment. And always conduct yourself in a way that's congruent with who you are as a kingdom person. And what it means to be a kingdom person is that you always want to look like Jesus. You always want to be formed in Jesus' character. And as we sung this morning, shining the light with the character of Christ. What is the character of Christ? It looks like the cross. Self-sacrificial, humble, servant-like compassion and love even for our enemies. And we're never to set this aside everywhere we go with everyone we're talking to, in whatever context we are in, we are always to be shining bright with the character of Christ, with love, with humility, with servanthood. And what happens is as we shine bright with the character of Christ, 
is that now out of that, God can and will and does create opportunities. And our role is to simply keep our eyes open to see the opportunities that God creates and make the most of them when they happen. But very important point here. We don't create the opportunities. God creates the opportunities. It's when Christians try to create opportunities, that's when, evang- that's when evangelism starts getting weird. That's when it starts getting awkward. Like we're Amway salesmen for Jesus. We don't create opportunities. We notice the opportunities. Paul says in the book of Acts, God is at work everywhere, in every civilization, on every continent, in every people group, in every neighborhood, in every human heart. God is at work trying to uh, bring a person to a place of spiritual hunger and yearning and searching. And so as we're loving and serving the people of the world around us, we understand that, number one, God's at work to create these opportunities. And when we acknowledge that, then we keep our eyes open to see the opportunities that are being created. We let the Holy Spirit lead us to someone where we see, you know what? Despite anything that's going on in the surface of their life, this person's hungry. This person's searching. This person's yearning. Maybe they don't even know what they're searching for. Maybe they don't know what that looks like, but I know what it looks like. And see, now, out of that relationship, there's a natural sharing that can take place to whatever degree is appropriate for that context. But when we think of evangelism this way, with this kind of mindset, with this kind of lifestyle, listen, folks, sharing the gospel becomes just as natural as telling someone about this cool band that I just heard about or, or telling them about this nice restaurant that serves this incredible, awesome food. And out of that relationship, as this person begins to ask a, a life question or they express a life need, now that's where I can step in and say, well, here's what met that need in my life. Or here's what answered that question for me. But it's very natural. It's very spirit-led. It's very organic. Okay? So let me, let me repeat myself. We don't create opportunities. You cannot, despite your best intentions, you can't make a person hungry for God. You can't make or, or force a person to seek after God. That's a work of the Spirit in their life. And so if we're constantly, it does no good to badger somebody who's hardened to anything you have to say. If you're trying to share the gospel with somebody who's totally close-minded, totally close-hearted, just, just focus on loving them and serving them because right now they're not ready. Love them and serve them because what you're doing is you're planting seeds. And who knows, 10 years down the road, somebody else is going to come along and share the gospel with them and now they're ready. And, it's, and you have a reward in that because you were the one that sowed seed in their life. You may never even see the fruition of it. But you just sow seeds and trust the Lord to do a work. Maybe right now they're not ready. So don't try to make them ready. Just love and serve them. In the meantime, keep your eyes open for more fertile ground elsewhere. I love the way that Paul um, approaches this. In, in Acts 17, I want to take a look at how uh, Paul shares the gospel He's in the city of Athens, and in the city of Athens, there's this mountain. It's called Mount Areopagus. Uh, Go ahead and say Mount Areopagus. I was debating. Say Mount Areopagus. It's a fun word to say. Mount Areopagus was where the uh, philosophers in Athens would gather, and they would have discussion and debate, and they would talk about the meaning of life and things like that. 
And so when Paul visits Athens, he finds out that that's where the people gather. And that's, that's where Paul goes, which even that in and of itself gives us a lesson about evangelism. If you want to bear the good news, don't wait for people to come to you. You go where they are. When Paul goes to Athens, he says, where do the philosophers gather? Where do they like to hang out? Oh, they go on that mountain. Paul says, I'm going to go plant myself right there in the middle of them. And so Paul goes to Mount Areopagus, and the very first thing Paul sees is he sees these statues, these idols, these pagan idols to these pagan gods. There's a whole slew of them. Evidently, these pagan philosophers, you know, they, they wanted to make sure every base was covered. They didn't want to leave any of those gods out. So they had an idol for every one of them. And you got to understand, from Paul's perspective, a first century Jew, nothing could have been more offensive. I mean, this is idolatry. This is a violation of the second commandment against making graven images. For, for a first century Jew, this was repulsive. It was grotesque. It's disgusting. It's demonic. But notice, Paul doesn't just go right up to them and start railing against their debaucherous paganism. Instead, look at what he says in verse 22. It says, then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I love what he's doing here. He sees past the ugliness on the outside. I'm sure on the inside, Paul was gagging. I'm sure he just wanted to throw up when he saw these idols. But he looks past all of that. And he sees a heart in these people that truly is searching. And they're sincere. And there's a heart of longing and seeking. And that's what Paul affirms. He says, you know what? I got to hand it to you all. You're taking this seriously. You're very religious. You've got all your bases covered. You obviously care about getting this thing right. And then he, in verse 23, he continues. He said, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Notice, he doesn't just come out with guns blazing, saying, hey, I've got the truth. You don't know the truth, so believe the way I do or you're going to burn in hell. No, 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 no. He comes out, he studies their belief system. He carefully examines this. He learns about them. You know, what's the structure of their faith? What are these, what are these guys about? What are they up to? And he studies these statues carefully. He even calls them objects of worship. Now, ultimately, Paul understands that these are, this is demonic. I mean, they're essentially worshiping demons. They just don't know it. But Paul enters into their world, and he affirms their intent. He affirms their sincerity. And he even calls them objects of worship. And then he goes on and he says, "Um, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So in the midst of all of these structures, all of these statues and idols, they even have one that says, to an unknown God. Because they didn't want to leave anybody out. You know, they were very careful. They didn't want to upset any of the gods. So just in case there was a God out there that they didn't know about, they even included an idol that said, to an unknown God. And then he closed he, uh, in, in the last part of verse 23, he says, you are so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. So Paul, 
instead of going after the negative and pointing out all of the beliefs that they had wrong, all of the practices they had wrong, everything about them that was offensive to him, it would have been very easy and emotional even. It would have scratched an emotional itch for Paul to just say, this is grotesque, this is demonic, knock it off. But he doesn't do that. He didn't go after the negative. He goes out of his way to look deeper, and he finds an opportunity to affirm something positive about them. And the positive is that they're hungry. These people are searching. Now, they're totally misguided. They haven't found it yet. But there's a hunger in these men to find truth. They even admit that they may not even have all of the answers. They even admit that, you know what, there may be a God out there that we don't even know about yet. And for Paul, that's the crack. That's the opening that he's going to build his whole gospel presentation on. And so he says to them, now let me tell, let's talk about this unknown God. And he begins to tell them about Jesus Christ. This is what New Testament evangelism looks like. I want you to listen to me very closely. If you're a kingdom person, when it comes to your relationship with the world, with people in the world who are not believers, who are not even proclaiming to be Christians, it is not our job, whether on Facebook or whether in person, it's not our job to comment on what we find wrong about them. It's not our role to, to, to comment on the wrongness of their beliefs or the wrongness of their lifestyle or what we find offensive. Paul said it more clearly than anybody could say it in 1 Corinthians 5. What business is it of ours to judge those outside of the church? We have no business doing it. And so the first thing we do is if something offends you, if something grieves you, if something makes you gag about a person, you just keep quiet about it. And you love them. And you serve them. And you sacrifice for them. And you trust that God's going to use it to create an opportunity in their hearts. Out of your loving service, an opportunity, a hunger is going to be developing in their heart. And when that opportunity comes, you're aware of it and you step into it. And now you share the truth of Jesus Christ. But now your words are going to have weight because of the way that you've loved and served them. And so the first thing we do when we want to share the good news is very simply we want to look like Jesus. And we want to put on display his outrageous love. And then we find ways that we can bless these people and love on them and trust that the spirit will open up opportunities for us to speak the gospel to them. And the words we use are important. So Paul says, let your words be filled with grace and seasoned with salt so that you may always know how to answer everyone. Now, what does it mean to let your words be filled with grace and seasoned with salt? First of all, I want to encourage you anytime you're having this type of conversation, always let the Holy Spirit guide the conversation. That's one of the things that... Uh, about our evangelism classes that I felt like maybe we're a little bit off is we had a ready-made cookie-cutter script to follow. You always ask these two questions. You always quote these five verses. You always quote these five points. And it was the same. People are different. People are unique. And therefore, the conversations we have are going to be unique. And you got to let the Spirit guide you. Trust that the Holy Spirit can guide you when you're having a conversation with a non-believer, let me tell you something about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is more interested in leading that person to Christ than you are. As much as you want to see the person come into the kingdom, your passion to see them come into the kingdom doesn't even compare to the Holy Spirit's passion and desire. And the Holy Spirit has been given to you as a helper, as a guide. He will help you if you'll give him an opportunity. 
So I just want to tell you, throw out the script. All right? Now, I know an evangelism explosion, even though it may not, it may not have been the perfect thing, God still used it. Because God always stoops down to our level of understanding and he'll use what he, what he has to work with. But the best kind of evangelism is spirit-led evangelism. So you go into a conversation and, and you be, first of all, you've got to be in tune with the spirit, which means you have to have an active prayer life. If you don't have an active daily prayer life, you're not going to be in tune with the spirit. But as long as you have an active prayer life, now you can be in tune with the Spirit on a, on a moment-by-moment basis. And in that conversation, just let the conversation slow down and listen to what the Holy Spirit may say because the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. He will give you things to share. And out of that, remember that it's always a conversation. Evangelism is not a monologue. It's not, it's not a presentation. You just sit down right there and let me present the gospel to you. It's most often a conversation, and conversations involve talking, but they also include listening. And listening is so important because, number one, it's when you listen to a person that you earn the right to be heard. And I'm going to tell you something, man. I have found that a listening ear is one of the greatest gifts that you can give to a person. I mean, how often do we have somebody that we sit across from who looks us in the eye who's focused and just gives us the gift of their presence and allows us to speak to them and share what's on our heart without interrupting, without trying to one-up our story. They just give us our full attention. That is a gift. And in our fast-paced society, sometimes those types of conversations are hard to find. And so listen to the person. And oftentimes it's when you're listening to them, that's when the Holy Spirit will point his finger at something that he wants you to say. As you're listening, all of a sudden now you see something. The Holy Spirit gives you some discernment or some wisdom on how to address the person. And every person's unique, so every conversation's going to be unique. Amen. Let me close with a story. I'm going to give you one more story about evangelism in my life. Uh, this one was a bit more successful. And then we're going to close in just a moment with communion. But I want to share about um, a story that happened in my life that, that I, I have some very important insights I think we can learn about evangelism from. Some of you may have heard me share this before. I've, I've shared it a couple times, but it's been a long time since I've shared this, and there's probably a lot of you that haven't even heard it. And even those that have heard it probably have completely forgotten about it. So I want to share this uh, one more time. Um, when I was in high school, I played baseball. I was on a 5A baseball team, Hanville High School. We had a really serious uh, very good program. We had a couple guys on our team that would go on to pr play uh, ball professionally. It was a pretty serious baseball program. I was one of the worst people on the team. I, I, um, I wasn't really a hitter. I wasn't a fielder, but I, I could pitch some. And so that's what I would do. That was my role. And um, my junior year, the summer before my junior year, I came out of youth camp that summer just really... I guess you could say on fire for Jesus, just really excited about the Lord and really wanted to make a difference in my school and just ready, man. I was ready for whatever Jesus would want me to do that year. And this was, a, this was a, a public school. This was not a Christian school, although I've learned in the last nine years that even in a Christian school, there's a lot of lost people. But at this public 5A school, there was a lot of, lot of need there, a lot of spiritual lack. And so God had kind of 
turned my heart to be a witness for him that year. And just before our school year started in August, I felt like in prayer, I felt like the Lord was leading me to get a list of all of the players on the baseball team for that last season. And so the very first day of school, I can still remember, I can see it in my mind's eye. I went to the office, very first day, I asked for a list of the baseball team from the previous season. And within a couple minutes, they had it printed off and they gave it to me. I don't think they knew what I was going to do with it. They didn't ask. Um, But I took it home and I started praying over the baseball team every single day that school year. Sometimes I would pray over them just as a group. Lord, just minister to this group of guys. And sometimes, often, I would just call their names out individually, and I would pray for each one of them. And I would do this every single day, August, September, October, November, December. Finally, January rolls around, which was the month we were allowed to start practicing. So here we were. We hadn't even met as a team for baseball practice yet, and I had been praying for each one of these guys for months And as I was praying over those months, one of the things that that was doing, I I, I believe my prayers were definitely making a difference in their hearts, but I also recognize that my prayers for those young men was also doing something to me. It was, first of all, in a very practical way, it was making me more aware of how I conduct myself around them. When we're in the locker room, when we're in the, the, the weight room, when we're hanging out together, I'm remembering i got to conduct myself in a way that's worthy of my assignment. Every day, I mean, how do you pray for somebody every single day and then live like the devil around them, you know? As I'm praying for them every day, it's keeping me alert and aware to make sure that I'm upholding uh, my testimony before them. I'm keeping my witness faithful uh, for my relationship with the Lord so that they can see the light that's in me. And that's exactly what was happening. You know, even throughout those first few months as we're gathering unofficially for different things, these guys are noticing there's something different about Ryan. There's something different about him. Of course, they didn't call me Ryan. They either called me Post or they called me Postman. None of y'all call me Postman. Nobody's called me Postman here in, in, in 16 years. I don't want to start the week that we leave. Uh, but, man, something's different about Postman. He's all religious, they would say. Man, he's going to be a preacher, they would say. It might have had something to do with a big cross I was wearing around my neck or that big Bible I would carry to school. You know, I'm doing the best with what I had, trying to be a witness. But it was working. You can tell their, their, their way of approaching me was different. Um, they noticed that I, I wouldn't always laugh at some of the things that they all laughed at, not out of self-righteousness, just because I want to be a light to these guys. They noticed that, you know, whenever they would go to New Orleans or Metairie and get into some trouble, that I wouldn't come along. They would notice some of those things. And they started to have a real respect for me. And I'm just praying for them. That's all I'm doing. And then January rolls along. We start practicing. And I I just keep praying. And everything just like, even my coach treated me totally different than he did the previous year. The previous year, he was always on my case. And then the ju- my junior year, it was like, it was almost like I was co-coaching the team. It was the way he treated me. I was just, he, had, he, he, he looked at me totally different than the other guys. 
And I keep praying, I keep praying. February, March comes along. Now we're playing games. We're in the thick of the season. But I didn't have any other direction from the Lord. I just keep praying and I keep upholding my witness before them. And then finally, April rolls along, which was the last month of the season. And I remember one of the final games of the year. It was on a Friday afternoon, and I believe it was West St. John High School. And West St. John High School was 45 minutes away from Hornville High School. So we had, to, we had to go to the locker room in the middle of the day, get in our uniforms, and ride a school bus together. And on Monday morning, five, four days before the game, I felt like the Lord gave me some direction. And I felt like the Lord was saying, Ryan, on this Friday, on the ride home after the game, I want you to share what I've done in your life. I want, to sh- I want you to share with the team what I've done in your life. And so, man, I'm ready. I'm excited. And I'm just envisioning what it's going to be like. And this is what all my prayers the whole year had been leading up to. And so I start writing down a few thoughts, some, some things that I felt like the Lord had put in my heart to mention to them. I start writing down some things. Thursday, the day before the game, I start getting terrified because I'd never done anything like this before. And I start having all of these fearful thoughts. Man, what if I stumble? What, that's a DC talk lyric. What if I, um, what if, what if, um, what if I fall? <laughs> um, no. What if, what, if I, what if I stutter? What if I just don't have the words to say? And what if they make fun of me? What if nobody responds? You know, all of these horrible thoughts. And I, it got to the point where I was about ready to just not do it. I was about ready to, because none of them know, knew I was going to do it yet. So I felt like I was going to back out. And finally, uh, I had a, a best friend at that time. His name was Adam. And I went to Adam. I said, Adam, listen, man. I feel like God's put in my heart to share my faith with the baseball team tomorrow on the way back home from that game. But I am scared out of my mind. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just give me a phone call after the game, after we get home. I want you to call me, and I want you to ask me how it went. So now I knew I've got to do it. Because I don't want to face my friend and tell him I chickened out. And so the next day comes, Friday, the day of the game, we, we ride the 45-minute drive to West St. John High School. We play the game. We lost. I probably pitched that day. And then we got back on the bus, and we started riding back to Hornville High School. Most of the guys were in the back of the bus. I was sitting near the front of the bus because I had my notes, and I wanted to take a few moments and pray. So I'm sitting there, and, and I'm just telling you, man, I'm a nervous wreck. I'm about ready to vomit. That's the second time I've used the word vomit in this sermon. Sorry, sorry. But I'm leaving next week, so I might say it again. But I'm sitting there, I'm just nervous. And I start praying this. This is how I start praying. You ever try to make a deal with God? All right, so this is what I do. I I say, God, I am scared out of my mind, filled with terror. But Lord, I'm going to make a deal with you. If you will take this fear away, you'll take this feeling of fear away, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to turn around and I'm going to do what you told me to do. And I'll tell you, my 17-year-old self heard from God about as clearly as I knew how in that moment. And what I felt like God was saying was, uh, Ryan, I am not going to do that. 
I am not going to deal with your fear. I'm not going to do what I told you to do. You've got to conquer your fear. You've got to stand up to your fear. But in faith, if you will step up, turn around, and do what I've told you to do, then I'm going to come through and do my part. So here I was, a nervous wreck in my second row bus seat. But I'm going to say this, and it might sound heretical, but I, I, I mean it. The time for prayer was over now. You understand? Like, there's nothing to pray about now. It's time to act. And I was scared out of my mind, but I took my Bible, I took my notes, and I stood up, and I turned around, and I looked at all of those guys, got their attention, and I said, guys, if you don't mind, I want to share something with you for a few moments. And in that moment, all of that fear, all of that anxiety, that nervousness was completely gone. And I walked to the back of the bus, and I sat down. The entire team was huddled around me. The water girls had come and joined us. Both of the coaches of the team had come to the back of the bus. The bus driver, no, not the bus driver. He stayed driving the bus. But everybody else was in the back of the bus. And for the next few moments, I just started to share what God had done in my life. And at the end, the best I know how, I mean, this is the, uh, my 17-year-old self just was doing the best he could. And I just said, guys, I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes. And, and I said, if you're here and you want to give your life to Jesus, would you raise your hand? And 12 of those guys raised their hands. Two of them were the coaches of the team. And what's interesting is that, you know, I don't know what lasting fruit has come out of that moment. I can tell you that I've been able to remain connected to those guys, to some of them through social media. In fact, a few years ago when I was preaching in different churches, on two separate occasions, I remember seeing one, uh, one of my fellow teammates. Years later, I'd never, I hadn't seen him in years. Um, one of them had, had come to hear me preach in Thibodeau, and another one had come to hear me preach in Berwick, where our new principal, Kelly Williamson's from, her, well, her, uh, the church that she grew up in. But, but the Lord still is able to take what happened there and, and bring fruit out of it, even enduring fruit that, that continues. Now, if, if I could go back, would I do it exactly the same? I wouldn't. Um, I probably would not try to do it in front of the entire team. I think, I think God used what I did because God always stoops to our level and sometimes he'll use our faulty methods. And so I think God was able to use that. But I think if I were to go back and do it, I'd do it differently. I'd probably be a little bit more personal. I'd try to work with those guys a little bit more one-on-one. -on -one. But nevertheless, God was working with what he had and God was able to bring something good out of what I gave him. And so I want to encourage you just with a few things out of that story. Number one, you are called to be a witness in your own unique way. It's not going to look exactly the same way for you that it did for me. Because you all have unique personalities, unique styles. And evangelism is not cookie cutter. It's diverse. And whatever evangelism is, when it's spirit-led, it's always natural. It's always organic. It always feels right. It doesn't feel weird. It doesn't feel awkward. So number one, recognize God's called you in some way to share the good news. The second thing I want to encourage you with, and this is one thing I did right, is I laid the groundwork in prayer. Ask the Lord before you leave this place, God, who is somebody that you want to put on my heart? A neighbor, a coworker, a friend, whoever. And commit to praying for this person. 
You don't have to commit yet to anything else. Just say, Lord, I'm going to pray for their salvation. I'm going to pray that they come to be reconciled to Christ. And just begin praying for them. And then look for opportunities to bless them. Look for opportunities to serve them. And then also begin praying, now, Lord, give me an opportunity. Lead me into a natural opportunity to speak the truth into their life and give me the words to say, whether it's spontaneous in the moment or whether just a few days before the Spirit begins to lead you. That's fine, too. The Spirit works in preparation. He also works spontaneously. Don't put the Holy Spirit in a box. But ask the Lord, give me an opportunity to speak into this person's life and keep praying that. And what's going to happen is now you're alert and you're awake and you're going to see the opportunities and boldly step into them. Amen. And I think if every follower of Jesus in this room would just commit to that. I'm not telling you to go stand on a street corner with a megaphone right now. What I'm telling you is let ask the Holy Spirit, put somebody in my heart and mind, commit to praying for them and begin serving them and ask the Lord, give me an opportunity, lead me into an opportunity to just share a simple word with them and watch what God will do. Watch what God will do. This whole church is going to be filled to capacity. You're going to have to have multiple services because God delights in using people who dare and have the audacity to pray, God, use me. I don't want to just be a pew sitter. I want to be useful in your hands in my own unique way. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. To learn more about Northside Assembly of God, check out our website at www.northsidecrowley.com.